Welcome to Joint Effort with Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. This podcast covers the pain and injuries that are associated with muscles, ligaments, and joints. Welcome to Joint Effort. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Jason Sullivan with uh, Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. Today we have an esteemed guest, John Klein. He's an MD anesthesiologist. Um, I work closely with him. And uh, you are the first doc on the show, non-orthopedist or podiatrist, so it's quite a feat. Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. I think you yeah. should. Yeah. This is a pretty big deal, pretty, you know, pretty big feel opportunity for a guy like you. feel honored to be here. <laughs> uh, so John and I go way back, uh, probably about seven years or so now, when you moved back from, you were in Texas at the time. Yep. Um, but you're from Iowa originally, and... I, how does someone figure out they want to do anesthesia? Like, do you go to med school and then you're like, I like this? Or um, are you like, I can't do clinic? You know, I just want to be in the OR. How, did, how does a guy like you figure that yeah, out? Yeah, I think uh, that's an interesting question because it's, it's not a field you necessarily get exposed to a lot, um, and uh, even in med school. So um, going into med school, I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, actually. Uh, then actually it was all the way up to my fourth year, and then actually did an elective rotation in anesthesia and really liked it and had an uncle and a cousin who were both anesthesiologists um, kind of talked to me more about it but um, so it's yeah it's a it's, it's a good field but not one you have a whole lot of exposure to till further along in med school right so, D- didn't you also do critical care I did a fellowship in critical care you after did. anesthesia after so anesthesia. that was actually what intrigued me I like taking care of like I like being in the ICU I like taking critical care patients so Doing anesthesia residency is one of the pathways you can get to do a fellowship in critical care. So that's kind of what drew me into anesthesia partly as well. And then thinking that would be my ultimate thing and that I would just do critical care, do ICU stuff. Um, after doing my fellowship, um, I realized that I kind of like being, <laughs> being in the OR a lot more than... Than in the ICU? Yeah. Okay. Um, just more reproducible environment um, is critical care just... Um, pretty demanding, isn't it? Yeah, so. I mean, the, the, the OR is, usually, you know, not necessarily all the time for the patients. is not a fun place, but for the, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you have conversations and stuff in the OR. Yeah. Um, I like, you know, you're <coughs> finishing a task, like start to finish, so you're done with it. Um, whereas in the ICU, sometimes, you know, your patients are there a long time. You're getting called throughout the night, and I, you know, they have those, some of the difficult conversations with the family. Um so those were some of the things that kind of drew me back. You actually uh, uh, trained under, uh, you were, I think, an intern on a, under one of our buddies, and you got coined the name Johnny Knowledge. Uh, one of the first stories I heard about you, you were, uh, I don't know if you're an intern or med student, but there was someone who wasn't doing too well in the ICU, and uh, uh, they kind of put you on the case because they knew you are uh, astute and could kind of sort some things out. I don't out. think they put me on the case. I think I was the only guy in there in the hospital overnight. Well, it just happened to be me what, on the call that night. Whatever it may have been, it, it sounds like, you know, they were almost, uh, you know, a palliative care scenario. But the story goes that um, the next morning, a senior resident comes in for rounds and, and the, the patient was nearing coming off the vent and everything because you spent your entire time. <laughs> and I, I believe that you tirelessly spent time on this patient because I've met you. And you just grind over the the, the, the details, and uh, that that's what makes you a good doc. I think that story is probably a little bit glorified. <laughs> glorified. Yeah. I think the patient was probably just getting better on his own, but maybe and I happen to be the guy I, in in the hospital that I, night. I choose to believe the other route, to be honest with you, uh, because I've uh, I've played hoops with you, I've worked out with you, I've been in the OR with you, and and uh, you don't leave much uh, to chance, to be honest, uh, including youth basketball, which. 
I feel badly for your kids. Not I many, do too. I feel bad for not many, So you walked on at Creighton and played basketball. <laughs> Are you not giving yourself credit for this? Do you not have a varsity letter? Or? No, I, I was on the team. You were on you know, the team. I, Did you start a few games? Uh, I think I started two games, you know, in my four-year career. Okay. So um, Were you the yeah. practice guy that they're like, just chill out, man, relax a little bit? No, you know, I, I wanted to go to Creighton for uh, school, and uh, Coach Allman gave me the opportunity to still play basketball. So, and it was fun. I met a lot of great guys, had a really good experience. So You had a pretty yeah. good team, too. We had a, yeah, had a really good team. Uh, Did you go Sweet 16? No, we, you know, unfortunately – we went to the NCAA tournament three times. Uh, only made it past the first round once, we got, but we got beaten the second round. Okay. And but, uh, sadly, uh, your children have taken up one of your hobbies in basketball. Not sadly. They're really good athletes, yeah. but I worry about them because you coach all three of them. Yeah. Not, not many people have time to coach one of their kids. You coach all three. Yeah, I don't know if it yeah, maybe forced a little bit <laughs> that they play and then unfortunately have to play for me. But uh, but they like playing, I think, um, and, I, and I like coaching. So. Yeah, watch out for your kids in the future. I think you got some college athletes mm -hmm. there. But uh, you definitely have a knack for coaching uh, youth sports, and you have a good perspective on things. Um, another interesting thing uh, about you is, and you and I actually kind of got into a verbal altercation about it. Not, not an altercation, but you were kind of a hero. You went out to Manhattan during this COVID crisis in April. Yeah, hero's a pretty, I know strong, you hero's I, pretty strong I, word if you – Look, I know I know two people that did that from the city of Des Moines. You were one of them, so at least you're in the minority in a decision that looked like a humanitarian type of decision. At the time, we were I was hoping to go out there, and you know I thought that would you know at the time they were thinking they needed a lot of ICU type care, you know. So I was hoping or and kind of thought going out there we might be uh, running like an ICU myself. Um, and uh, fortunately, you know things were better than um, by the time that we got out there, they were better than better what, off as far from a staffing standpoint than what you know anticipated what, so. what was it just give us an example how long were you there for just a week planned to be out there two weeks yeah. but after the, the day i showed up there was three anesthesiologists from new york that showed up and a where, couple where of military did you stay guys. uh we, they i stayed in a hotel and then i was at harlem hospital in uh, new york city when you got off shift the city was from what i understand completely closed down how do you even get something to eat at that point <laughs> We had to, uh, they had some places that were still doing takeout, so call and get takeout, and then had to walk, like, um, just walk, yeah. go get it. But Did, the city was pretty shut down. I mean, being on Manhattan with, you know, virtually no cars except for, uh, you know, some Ubers and taxis and stuff was basically the only cars out. Was it a surreal experience for you? I mean, I know you said it wasn't quite what you thought, but what, when you got there, you, did you kind of have a insight into what hey this is a real deal this is a real problem i mean we hadn't quite seen yeah. it in iowa yet at that point yeah it was april you know so and didn't really know what to expect so at that time i thought it was um kind of expecting the worst to be honest and in many ways it was especially for uh, people in new york you know um but people out there were working really hard um they like i said they had enough uh docks um, I think that they were a little bit short on some nursing care and some stuff like that. So were you putting in IVs and a central line? Um, yeah, well, I, I would go like around in the ICU with one of the ICU staff, and then they had you know one uh, resident there that was kind of covering that ICU. So I would kind of I kind of helped her out throughout the day. And then what they had us doing uh, was on like an intubation team. So okay. they would uh, there's a lot of patients that need to be intubated, so they would just call over the intercom like you know intubation to whatever floor and for you and, that's that's and then, second nature yeah and that's then 
uh, I would respond to that and intubate the patient, and then they would get taken over by that. I was mainly worried if you go in there, you were basically helping lead our COVID task force here. So I was worried <laughs> if we lost a little focus here, you know, I was like, what, you know, what are we going to do? There was plenty of uh, yeah. capable people here well, still that could take care of I'm it. I'm sure so. uh, it was quite, you know, an experience for you, and uh, uh, you probably never forget it. But uh, Yeah, I don't think you'll ever, no, won't ever forget it for sure, you know, wish we could have done a little bit you know yeah. been a little bit more helpful but like i said they are they were doing a really good job out there with a diff, very very difficult situation so well the reason we brought you on today is to discuss you know how anesthesia impacts someone's care you know perioperative care the whole thing um and you are one of the leaders at at our surgery center and you know f- for that part you know you take you're at all of the hospitals that we cover as well in orthopedics and so um your group over at the last five years I have seen you know change in, in the model a little bit in terms of you've kind of formed some task force focus groups that kind of take a special interest in certain things to kind of lead or an emerging field mm-hmm. and not that anything groundbreaking has come up in orthopedics but we've made some changes I think that are worth talking about um, and um, one of the big ones in orthopedics is the development of regional anesthesia over the last say 10-15 years uh, can you speak to that a little bit, um, and, and how do you talk to a patient? What does regional anesthesia mean, and how does that impact their care on the day of surgery? Sure. So um, I trained at the University of Iowa and uh, was does a ton of regional anesthesia, so basically nerve blocks to kind of numb uh, different different nerves depending on what uh, part of the uh, patient, what part of the body the patient's getting operated on. Um, so we were doing a ton when I was in residency and. Um, so a lot of the guys uh, trained there were pretty, became pretty adept at uh, doing those. What's changed at OSC in the last, you know, five, seven years is now we've kind of built a regional, having a dedicated person to do those uh, nerve blocks. Um, so what we'll do is the patient comes in, and if they're scheduled for a nerve block for, let's say, a rotator cuff surgery or a hand surgery, uh, we'll take that patient to, um, and do that block ahead of time before we go into the operating room. Um, which is kind of, I think, streamlined the whole process. And we're doing a lot more nerve blocks. A lot of the you know, younger guys coming out of training now are very, very um, familiar are, and comfortable doing nerve blocks. Are there well. newer techniques being developed, or is it just the comfort level to kind of uh, push into new boundaries, push past boundaries we previously had? You know, it seems like there's all these new fancier blocks that come out that, hey, this can spare you know, uh, the quadriceps muscle, for example, on an ACL, which is a big deal. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, a couple uh, some newer nerve blocks as well. Um, but in addition, then just using ultrasound, mm-hmm. but that's been you know, that's been around for a while. Um, I think using ultrasound has made those blocks maybe a little bit more effective. And um, ultrasound allows you to see the needle and the nerve or bundled nerves that you're blocking, right? So, kind of real time, and you can see that see the nerve, like you said, and then see your ner- needle get real close to those nerves. That's when we inject the local anesthetic that surrounds those nerves. Have you ever had a nerve block yourself? No, okay. Well, I in training, we'd have Iowa was, uh, you know, like I said, was one of the places that did a lot of uh, work with regional anesthesia. And you'd they'd let, have a, you'd let people block you. Um, yeah, if you, you could volunteer to uh, to be a model for the nerve blocks. Were you a model? I did. I mean, I got I got the needle poke, but they didn't inject local anesthetic, so I wasn't numb. Okay. But, yeah. Well, so, I mean, so you have, you know, a lot of things we do. They say. Well, is it going to hurt? And and honestly, when I'm doing a shoulder injection, I kind of know from patients' experiences, but I've never had a shoulder injection, so I can't really tell them. Well, yeah. so you can actually. So, what do you tell a patient who's about to have this done? 
I tell them that, you know, there's we're going to numb up the skin with some local anesthetic just in the, the skin. I tell them that's going to be like a little pinch and a burn, kind of what it's going to feel like. Um, the nerve block itself is usually not very painful. When we inject that, uh, when we inject the local anesthetic, you know, sometimes it's in some tight compartments, um, so you'll feel some pressure and maybe a little pain from that. But usually um, it's not, uh, you know, a super painful procedure. I tell them it's, you know, probably less painful even than the IV start that you had to start the day. Okay. Um, so most can people you, do really well with it. When, you, when you're doing this, can you give them something to take the edge off a little bit? Yeah, um, a lot of us do give them um, some Versed, which is an anxiolytic, so okay. it kind of makes them less anxious. And okay. and I tell people, even though you may be still talking to us, and you know, and may not remember, you it. may not remember okay. th- that procedure. Yet. Well, so. I know I know the value in orthopedics uh, for regional blockade um, uh, is tremendous. Uh, we know that uh, utilization of pain meds post-op is almost half if you use regional, um, uh, and and just the patient being able to get home in a comfortable manner uh, and, and not worry about the pain they're experiencing and get settled in at home, that's a big deal. They can get pain meds on board before it returns. Um, but when they actually go to sleep at the time of surgery for you, how does it, how does it help you guide them through their, you know, when they're in the OR and they're asleep? Well, you know, with a lot of the surgeries, um, let's say it's a hand surgery, you know, if the nerve block's gonna cover the entire, you know, operation where they're not going to feel anything, not be able to move that harm. Um, Are then you we keeping them awake? Then we don't necessarily even go all the way off to sleep with general anesthesia. You know, a lot of the term that people use will be kind of conscious sedation or twilight or whatever. So not necessarily using going all the way off to sleep with general anesthesia. And um, that allows us to you know, kind of wake them up quicker towards the end. Um, the medicine that we use, which is propofol, uh, for the sedation usually um, is less risk than nausea and vomiting, which is, you know, beneficial. Less for risk than what? Like a general anesthetic, which usually for the general anesthetic, we use anesthetic gas to keep them asleep. And that's a, kind of one of the more common triggers for some nausea and vomiting postoperatively. Okay. So is it guaranteed they won't have nausea and vomiting? Yeah, not, not guaranteed, but a lot less likely that they're going to have nausea and vomiting. And then, like I said, like we can kind of let them wake up towards the end of the procedure. Um, we take them straight to the second stage of recovery. Um, they're so sitting, they bypass first stage. Bypass the first stage. You know, there's no breathing tubes, less risk of sore throat. Um, they're sitting in a chair, eating, drinking, and out of the facility pretty quickly. For some of the procedures that uh, still maybe because of positioning or maybe the block doesn't cover the entire procedure, we'll still go to sleep with general anesthesia. Um, is that then the same as if they didn't have the block, or can you give them less? Yeah, you know, maybe not using as many narcotic pain medicines, which all can, you know, <coughs> cause that cause some nausea and vomiting as well. Um, so those are some of the benefits. And then, like you said, going home with a nerve block, you know, the ride home is mm-hmm. uh, uh, less painful. You kind of get settled in at home, take some oral pain medicines before you go to bed at night. We tell people, I tell them, kind of depend on the block, but you know, somewhere in the range of 12 to 24 hours that the block's going to work. And then hopefully by that time they have some oral pain medicines on board is kind of wearing off. So when someone comes the first day of the OR or whatever for the OR that day, uh, they're meeting a guy who's going to give them their block and not potentially who's going to put them to sleep, correct? Correct. And that helps streamline things <clears throat> because you have more or less a team of you know, uh, uh, guys and gals that are really, really good at this regional anesthesia. Right. Um, well, and so some days there's... 15, 16 blocks. Yeah, I think today I think we did 17 blocks. And, you know, so the person who does the, the block will come talk to the patient, uh, see them, discuss any questions, concerns, uh, talk with their, get their medical history. 
make sure they're a candidate for block and then do the block and kind of report to anesthesiologists who will then take care of them in the operating room. Yeah. It just kind of streamlines it, whereas before, a lot of times for some of these procedures, we were doing the nerve block in the operating room. Um, and I think this is a little bit better situation. Just efficiency purposes. Yeah, yeah efficiency, you know, positioning, you know, sometimes in the operating room table. Uh, for some of these blocks we do, you know, you, you may either go up on your side or... You know, I'm sure the patient would rather have you be comfortable in a comfortable environment, <laughs> right? Doing the block than feeling the pressure of hurrying up, getting yeah. someone off to sleep. Exactly. exactly. Uh, surgeons waiting, you know, as you always say, we're always pressuring. Yeah, yeah I mean, always breathing down our necks. <laughs> yeah. going faster. I don't know about that. But. So it seems like, you know, are, are there any complications? You know, you put... Uh, so if you do a shoulder, an inner scaling nerve block, which is for shoulder surgery, let's say, um, I mean, some people can't even feel their hand and they have very little motor control at that point. Um, and, and we do get some questions, you know, uh, right. they'll call 14 hours later, Hey, this hasn't worn off. And some people don't like that feeling. It's right. like a claustrophobic feeling. Right. How, how do you, I mean, how do you talk them through this? Like what, what are the stages of the recovery from this block and when it will, you know, does it come off all at once or. Right. So we were tracking this, uh, Early on, well, we still call every patient after uh, post-operatively. Um, Who does? Who calls the, them? Someone from the facility from OOSC. The we'll next day. Them. Yeah. Okay. We'll call them the next day to see how they're doing, see what the if they have any questions, concerns about the nerve block, and if there are, they'll write it down, and then uh, I end up usually reviewing those. Uh, the What's biggest, the most common? The biggest complaint that we saw early on was that people didn't know. They'll, they'll say, "I didn't know my arm was going to be that numb." let's say so it's like so, it, it works so well <laughs> it works so well right so um what i've started to include and in when i go talk to them about them i was like i tell them i was like you know the biggest complaint that we hear about this is you know that your arm's going to be really numb and then the other complaint is that they don't let like that sensation kind of pins and needles when it's waking up mm -hmm. so kind of like your arm's been asleep so i try to explain that to them that it's kind of like your arm if you've been lying up for a long time that pins and needle sensation and that'll take some time to wear off you know a couple hours and that'll go away so I try to counsel them well on both of those things. Um, as far as other complications of nerve block, there you know there are. Um, Can you get any permanent nerve damage? Yes, the risk is very very small. You know, one in a few thousand. Um, fortunately, we haven't had uh, any of those that I know of. We've had some that have had some lingering, either numbness or tingling after a nerve block, um, and in which case we follow those up and we've had them see neurologists and. When they've even when they start track these long term, um, you know, in, in studies and stuff, you know, majority if not all these nerve injuries um, will go away over time. Um, there are some patients where that might be a little bit higher risk, and we'll, we talk to those patients about them, and sometimes uh, decide not to do not to do the block because okay. of those reasons. So, tell me about. Uh, let's switch gears from outpatient, or this could still be outpatient to be honest, but um, like for for a total knee replacement right. and a spinal. Well, it seems like there's been some change recently, some evolution, and maybe what's what's the cocktail used for the spinal uh, in an outpatient setting, maybe versus an inpatient setting, and 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 uh, tell our audience kind of like what's being taken into consideration there. So, um, in the last, you know, we've started doing the outpatient total joints there at OSC in the last uh, few years, mm -hmm. and uh, volumes increasing. <clears throat> We've always kind of thought for total joints, a, a, you know, you can do either a spinal, which is a you know a, a local anesthetic shot in the, in the back, which makes you numb. Both you know, sides. Both sides, lower extremities, yeah, and it lasts a couple hours. We've always thought, and and a lot of the literature will show that you know maybe a spinal is you know, 
maybe better than a general anesthetic for total joints for a number of reasons, whether that's decreasing blood loss. Um, Why is it decreased blood loss? Well, it kind of vasodilates uh, the blood vessels and maybe lowers the blood pressure a little bit, so there's less blood loss and less mm-hmm. risk of transfusion. Um, maybe helps with decreasing uh, pulmonary complications because obviously you're not putting in a breathing tube. Um, and uh, and then blood clots in the legs too. So there's reasons, you know, that that's debated and trying to decide if the yeah. spinal is better. So, but anyways, I'd say we do 90, 95, probably 95 percent of our total joints with the spinal. In the outpatient setting, uh, what we want is for those, you know, that spinal to wear off fairly quickly after surgery. So uh, obviously, so they can get home. So they can move they can their mobilize. legs. They can get up. They can mobilize. Yeah. Uh, I think you know a lot of them are doing physical therapy and walking. You know, the same day. Uh, so we've 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 changed uh, to the type of local anesthetic that we're using uh, for the inpatient or for the outpatient total joints. Um, and it's a what's the acting time on that half life? Uh, you know, like I've I've done a fair amount here, and a lot of my patients are kind of wiggling their toes uh, towards the end of the as as we're putting on the dressings and yeah. coming out of the operating room. So, so you have to have so that's a that's a pretty good example of trust between anesthesia and surgery. There, correct? Yeah, you got to know. You need to know your orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. You, and uh, you need to know this isn't going to be a four-hour operation. You need yes. I mean, in that case, there's always you know that if if the nerve block, we would never obviously let a patient be back there and uncomfortable. And if if they're moving too much, we can always convert mm-hmm. over to a general anesthetic if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, the like you said, the trust between the anesthesiologist and the surgeons, and most of it has been working together for a long time, so we kind of know how long it's going to take right. unless something you know unforeseen happens. Um, so it's been working out well. Um, I think most of the patients are doing well. Again, we have there's a total joint coordinator here at OSC that tracks all that kind of stuff um, as far as pain control, mobilization, and stuff. And yeah. it's, you know, it seems to be working well. Good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that brings me into, you know, kind of my next question uh, uh, about uh, you're saying, you know, nausea is a big deal. Like, can you, is there anything patients can do pre op? You know, uh, all these things you do in regional anesthesia can help with preventing nausea. That mm-hmm. seems like the biggest complaint other than pain after surgery. Like, what what can they do themselves? Can they control anything heading into surgery? Yeah. Whether it's proven in literature or anecdotally <laughs> from your own experiences, what do you... I don't know about either one of those things. I mean, there's things that we do um, to try to prevent nausea. What do nausea. you do? So... Um, hydration, you know, being well hydrated. So some people, I'll, I'll give them a little more fluid if they need to. There's certain. Uh, who gets a scopolamine patch? I give it to people who've had a prior history of nausea and vomiting with surgery. What's the downside well, in giving it to everyone? Uh, well, it can cause a dry mouth. In some elderly people, it can cause some confusion, uh, potentially. Okay. Uh, there's risk of some, uh, you know, uh, problems with urination in elderly men. Um, but uh, so that, but so I'll give it to people who've had a prior history or if they've uh, uh, get motion sick. You know, a lot of times people use scopolamine for on cruises or you know uh, if they get motion sick anyway. So I'll give it to those patients, and then other medicines that medicines that we can use. You know, we give some decadron, some Zofran. Um, there's a handful of others that we can use as well. Avoiding general anesthetic. <coughs> Sorry. Is this basically the? Uh cocktail that people go to after they have a hangover <laughs> you see these hydration centers i mean is this more or less what they're doing there is, uh, there, is there any uh you know, secret those, sauce in those places <laughs> there's no secret sauce in those places besides iv fluids really 
That's probably what they're giving in some soap. You don't think so. there's some Toradol in there or? Um, I don't know if that, that'd be for pain control, that, you know, kind of cure the headache or whatever, but I don't know exactly what they include in right. all those. Okay. So. All right. You can't speak to that. I'm not, I'm not trying to right. run one of those clinics myself. Fair enough. Sorry. And if, if someone's, so, it, you know, there's been movies made about, you know, fear of going, undergoing anesthesia and being awake and not being able to relay to someone you're awake and you're feeling things. You, when you mentioned your spinal's wearing off, you see someone moving. That patient's not awake at that point. Motor-wise, they can move and wiggle, but they're, they're going to have no recollection of moving. Is Correct. that fair to say? Or um, So <clears throat> with a spinal, usually most of the time then we're doing some conscious sedation too. So I tell people with conscious sedation like a colonoscopy. Are they basically taking a nap? Basically taking a nap. And, but I tell them, you know, there's a chance you could hear things, chance you could remember things. Chances are you won't care with those. Most people don't. But if people start moving and start waking up with conscious sedation, then we can always kind of give a little bit more either propofol or Versed or whatever. The what people are concerned about, and sometimes people don't know that necessarily know the difference between being a general anesthetic and uh, or they'll tell me, hey, I woke up during my surgery last time, and I'm like, oh, what did you have done? And they'll say, well, I had my wisdom teeth that came out, or I had a, it was my colonoscopy. Well, yeah, that's conscious sedation. That's you know, or the wisdom teeth would be like with nitrous or whatever. So that's possible, right? And people just maybe don't necessarily understand the difference. It's very very uncommon to wake up uh, under a general anesthetic and actually be aware and, and uh, remember it. and remember it that being said it, it does happen there's some higher risk types of surgeries or scenarios where that can happen but very very rare okay um, one of the biggest points of uh, uh, contention among patients you know is this NPO right uh, NPO meaning nothing to eat or drink essentially but clarify this rule for me <laughs> we, we want we want people to not eat or drink after 12 p.m. Correct. Right. But clear what liquids are acceptable up until. Uh, well, our society, you know, says till two hours. Two hours before. So two hours until that. But sometimes it's just cleaner to tell people, don't 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 have the black coffee because they'll right. think coffee may not count, right? Right. What? So clear liquids, you know, is actually clear liquids. So water and you know Gatorade. It's not coffee would be considered <coughs> clear liquid. Tea with, but not with sugar and milk and which most people put in there so. so why is uh why is why is gatorade acceptable but then you know tea with sugar and all this stuff isn't what's the difference well it has to do with like the <coughs> consistency and what's all involved and you know there's studies on like how fast your stomach will empty that so our concern is aspiration so like some of the stomach contents coming up and getting down to your lungs which is you know is always a and, risk with and that usually people. happens when you're inducing uh, yeah, after you, when you go to sleep, or you've lost some of your protective airway reflexes with, you know, with conscious sedation. So um, that's what we d we're trying to avoid with those MPO guidelines. Um, that's when your job goes from cruise control to right panic. Yeah, not, pa not panic. You know what to do, but it's an aspiration is obviously something you're trying to avoid. Very, very, you know, very, very uncommon, but it does happen on occasion and. You know, so if we would like, ideally on elective surgeries to have a, you know, kind of an empty stomach if, if possible. So. so your message to patients would be don't lie about what you've had. <laughs> I mean, how, what, I'm guessing you've had, seen people that you know lied and egg, oh, eggs come up or. I'm you, sure, yes. You know? yeah, I mean, I've, I, you know, haven't been involved in it, you know, having done this for 10 years, you know, I've had 
some aspiration events and whether they whether they lied or you know usually the scenarios are also like some sort of trauma or whatever that you know we don't have time for to have mm-hmm. an MPO guideline in, in advance you know so um but so that makes your job a little more difficult if they're uh, not adhering but but I think most people with elective surgery I mean they're in their interest in that day being a success and are, are we changing um I don't know if we're there yet but are we looking into potentially some type of energy supplement or whatever it may be to help with dehydration or blood glucose control after surgery well there's a lot of a lot of talk in uh, in the literature and uh, within different uh, programs now about they call it enhanced recovery after surgery and one of those is it's a it's a lot of different things that go into those uh, protocols one of those would be um, changing those MPO at least you know it entice it or having the patients continue to eat or not eat but drink up until two hours before so they don't come in in a dehydrated like unfed state okay. and there are there are certain uh, drinks that are acceptable but again like right now those are only certain drinks and right now we're still a little hesitant on what the you know telling patients to have anything because never knowing what they what they might take it'd just be so, easiest if they didn't it's not terribly difficult if you're first case, but if you're in the afternoon, yeah, you know you're all of a sudden fasting when you weren't intending to fast. But. Right. All right. So let's get into you know what. What are the most common fears you hear from patients? I mean, anesthesia is some. I have a lot of patients that are much more fearful of the anesthesia than they are of the surgery. Uh, do you, Do you hear all these fears? Do they ask you? Do you have any? Um, well, I mean, there has to be some crazy questions you've been asked over the years and some myths that you've debunked. Right. So I think the biggest one is we kind of touched on a little bit is like, am I going to wake up um, during this? Yeah. And, you know, I can tell them pretty confidently that you're you're not going to happen. You're not going to you're not going to wake up. You're not going to remember this. Oh, pain controls a big one. Uh, You know, am I going to wake up in pain? We talked a little bit about nerve blocks as far as, you know, not all surgeries can we do nerve blocks for. But, you know, we get pain medicines throughout the surgery, try to. That, you know, we've kind of changed into a lot of, a lot of mul- what we call multimodal, so a lot of different avenues to con- try to control pain, you know, NSAIDs, uh, Tylenol, non-narcotic pain medicine, that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. For me, so, it's people are worried about, you know, where their cell phone's going in that plastic <laughs> bag, you know, am I going to see that again? Or, um, But, uh, yeah, it's a nerve-wracking day for patients, no doubt, and to have uh, an anesthesiologist, the quality of yourself and your groups is a big deal. And it seems like there's a, a decent amount of collaboration in this town, no matter what specialty it is, uh, with you guys. Uh, it's interesting. You can ask any one of the guys in your group, you know, about a surgeon they're working with, and they'll know, like, the three or four main points, you know, like uh, what, what, what kind of their habits are, you know, what their uh, speed is, what kind of music they listen to in the OR, right? I mean, do you guys have cliff notes on this stuff, or is this just a memory <laughs> bank you file away? And- it's kind of funny. Like, when I showed up, when I came to, to this job seven years ago, like, my first month or maybe even two months, a little bit longer, whatever, every night I would call one of the senior partners in my group. I was like, hey, I'm working with so-and-so tomorrow. What do I – what do I expect yeah. or how do I, you know, what do we, what do they like? What do they dislike? That kind of stuff. And, um, so after you kind of figure that out, then you kind of, you kind of know, um, cause everyone's a little bit different, you know, for the most you part. Have a Rolodex, you have a Rolodex, you know, no, like, not, oh, God, not. Sullivan tomorrow again. <laughs> no, I can't take the EDM music. Just call a partner and change out that if that's the case. Yeah. You just switch out. Yeah, hey, you switch out. Can't do it. Can't do it again. Like, Can we not do once, this? Once a month. 
is that the yeah that's probably your threshold i would guess no we have a good time in the or i think um when you take care of your end of things and you know everyone around you is taking care of things then uh it leads to like this fun environment it's hard to describe unless you've been there you know yeah um like for people to think you, you listen to music in the aura, that's crazy. You know, it should be everything should be super intense. Right. Um, you know, a, a lot of what we do is should be reproducible, uh, should be second nature. The thought process a lot of times should be done ahead of time, uh, as it is for me. I'm sure it is for you when you're pre-oping a patient. You see them, you kind of you eyeball them. You know what their meds are. You know how we're going to attack this thing. And so then when you're in there, um, it's a pretty collegial, fun environment, I think. Right. You know, we do this every day, multiple times a day. Um, and, and I think, you know, for patients, you know, this might be their first surgery, second surgery. And I guess that's one of the biggest things I can kind of remember when I wanted to go into the anesthesia was my uncle being like, you know, that like surgery is a big deal for a lot of people. You know, mm-hmm. there's like one of the most stressful things. That are it's maybe, a huge deal. Maybe one of their most stressful times in their life. And it's like you're going to be one of the last piece, persons they see before they go off to sleep. And then um, and you can you can do a lot to kind of you know, help with that fear, anxiety, you know, if just based on how you talk to them and what you, you know, and how you interact with them right before that. So, um, again, you know, but then once we're in there, then we're, you know, they're, they're taken care of. And then yeah. it's like the things that this is just what we do. They're every comfortable day. and we just take care of it. Yeah. Uh, everyone says, oh, you know, the, the medicine you inject to put someone to sleep burns. Does it actually burn? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does. It I mean, does. It, but how, how do you, if you don't remember that it burned, did it actually burn? Has anyone ever remembered it burning? Uh, well, I've had surgery a couple of times, and and I, I have I have remembered it. You burning. do, but you know, there's things we can that we try to do to. It, some of it depends on the the patient. Some of it depends on the size of the IV. You know, mm-hmm. um, we try to do different things like putting some lidocaine or numbing medicine in that uh, propofol or, in, or into that IV beforehand to decrease the burning. Again, not everyone has a, yeah. a bad reaction. Uh, uh, it's not even a bad reaction, but some people. You know, just like with everything, everyone's a little bit different, but um, some people have more, more pain than I, others. I will say, you know, I've never, I've never heard anyone complain of that in clinic, but and most people tell me that all they remember is warm blankets being placed on them. Yeah. And then that was it. So smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. But uh, we really appreciate you coming on. You know, sometimes uh, you take for granted the things that you guys do that streamline the process and. I know at DMOS we really appreciate your group, uh, your collegiality, and, and working towards a common goal. And I know it's ended up with better patient results. So thanks again for no, coming it's on. Great place to work. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Yep. Got it. Thanks for listening to Joint Effort, a podcast from Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. If you have questions about this podcast and wish to schedule an appointment with the surgeon, call 515 224 1414 or visit dmos.com.